Well, I finally got on a plane a couple of weeks ago for the first time in a couple of months. Arlene and I were out in Colorado, and we visited our middle son and his wife who were in their brand new house. I say brand new because it's brand new for them, but it's not brand new in terms of when it was built. Uh, But it was their first home, and we wanted to celebrate that with them, and it's been put off for months because of the pandemic. This house, as we were sitting in it, Joel told us it was built in 1888. It's in downtown Denver. It's a bungalow. It's charming. And I said, say when? He said, 1888. <laughs> I started laughing. I said, do you, you recognize that date? And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, the book that I dedicated to you and your two brothers called Life with a Capital L. Uh, I remember the story I start with. That painting by Nikolai Yeroshenko, uh, remember when it was painted? He said, oh, my word. You guys have seen this before, so I won't spend much time on it, but I'm, I've actually gone back to this painting. We actually talked about it over dinner a little bit. This setting, painted by Yeroshenko back during the revolution and when people were being shipped off to Siberia and they're on a prison rail car and these prisoners are taking a moment to engage with a life experience. And Yeroshenko revealed, as I've talked about, that he was talking about the life of the gospel, not just putting a positive spin on it. And I've looked at this painting numerous times during this pandemic of there is life everywhere. Okay, God, really? In the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of a cultural crisis, there's life everywhere. And it is. And that's why we're calling this series Awaken. We're looking at it because that's what the gospel calls us to do. And you saw that verse come up. That was that verse from John chapter 1, verse 4. In him was life, and that life is the light of all mankind. That's how John starts his gospel. There's heart-beating life and lung-breathing life. And the Greek words there are bios for biological or or, or suke, psychological. But then there's that zoe. That's what John's gospel is about. We've been journeying through it. We took a break for a while. We're now about to move into the second half of the book. This is what launched us in in Jesus was the life of God. And it's what we're born without because of our sin. And the gospel comes and introduces us to, through his spirit, a new way of living. And throughout John's gospel, he unpacks that. And he finishes at the end of the book, he says, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, this is a review for many of you, but if you're new with us, there's a twofold part to this. It's the orthodoxy part, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. But also there's the vibrancy, that by believing you may have life in his name. And, and that's the big question. Do I know what life in his name is in this situation, in this context? So often we deal with orthodoxy in terms of the vertical and between us and God. And we don't deal with the horizontal between us and other people and us and our life journeys. Orthodoxy, redemption, justification by faith, one of the majestic doctrines of the gospel. But that's, John says that's only part of the gospel The other part is this life in his name, the vibrancy, the restoration to who we were intended to be as human beings. 
And it's not just justification between us and God. There's justice between us and others. It, it includes many other things, but I'm mentioning that because I mentioned that this week in a devotional. This whole notion of justice is something that we have been talking about a lot these last couple of weeks. If we're missing justice, we're missing the life of the gospel. In fact, we've stayed in the realm of religiosity because that's all orthodoxy is without the vibrancy. It's dead orthodoxy. Tim Keller at the Veritas Forum one time said that when the world sees us doing evangelism, they just see us recruiting. But when they see us doing justice, they see God's glory. May God enable us to show his glory to this culture. And Tim's not saying we shouldn't do evangelism, of course, but evangelism, when it's orthodoxy without vibrancy, is just kind of recruiting people for our institution. But when evangelism is part of an orthodoxy and vibrancy, it spreads into so many arenas where we demonstrate the gospel. And so what we're doing is picking the action back up in John chapter 12. If you've got a Bible, find it, and let's go through the first part of this passage. Now, that first phrase, six days before the Passover, John's putting a marker, and he's saying, in this journey, this is where we are in the life of Jesus. And so understand this. This is how the first half of John goes, goes up to this point, and we've already covered that. We took a break. Now we're about to finish it out. We'll finish it this year. First half leading up to the Passion Week. Six days before the Passover, We've got the Passion Week, Easter Week that we, we celebrate. Now what we're about to do is look at Jesus' passion, his, his engagement with the disciples in Jerusalem. And he's headed to the cross. And coming out of the cross, he'll come out of, off the cross, he goes into the grave, out of the grave, into this life of resurrection, and then commissions the disciples. But here's the transformation that happens here. We're about to move from Jesus' uh, teaching and his miracles and what he's doing relating with the disciples to him engaging firsthand with his death. His death wasn't an accident. He's been preparing for it. But this, the, the second half of John is about Jesus uh, giving his life for us. But it's also about us then responding. You're about to see uh, the, the, the bar raised in terms of what's required of us as his followers. A little bit later, and we'll get to this in a couple of weeks, later in John chapter 12, verse 25, he talks about you who love your life, you're going to lose it. Mark chapter 8, verse 35, he says the thing, same thing. If you're loving your life, if you want to hold on to it, this whole notion when we say life with a capital L, it's not this thing that says Jesus is all about me. It's about, I'm about, I'm about Jesus. And it's me giving my life so that I can receive his life. It's me dying, picking up my cross. All of those uh, ramifications are going to be coming out in the second half of John. So let's keep reading. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Right there tells you that there's something significant going on. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. And Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. 
Then Mary took up about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. And he did not say this because he cared about the poor. He wasn't interested in that justice we were talking about earlier. He was saying it because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And then Jesus intervened. He said, leave her alone. He answers for It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You'll always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. They hadn't seen a dead man before who'd come back to life, which was simply a preview of what was about to happen in Jesus' journey and then in ours. We're resurrected when we come to Christ, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus, and they were believing in him. It's a powerful, powerful passage. This intimate dinner, and then it got even more intimate, but the tension rose as well. It was this tension between what Mary was doing as an act of love and extravagance and what Judas was talking about in terms of his his miserliness. In this passage, we can find out a lot about the cost of living. And when I say living, I'm referring to living with a capital L, the life of the gospel. It does cost us. We give our lives up in order to receive his life. And so what I want to do is just unpack this text in the context of really three areas in which we pay a high price in terms of the the cost of living. Now, in many homes of that era, they would have alabaster, very expensive marble, an alabaster vase that would have expensive oils and aroma. We talked about this a little bit in our series in Psalm 23, about him anointing our heads with oil. And uh, this was one of those occasions. We're told in a couple of other passages in the Gospels that it was alabaster, which was normally what was there. Well, sometime during the meal, Mary got up, walked over to Jesus, and she anointed his feet, we're told. I just said his feet with oil. She said, I want to give this to you. She was expressing something. She was expressing a cost that she inherently had already learned from following Jesus' teaching. The cost of living, it will cost us our pride. It costs us our, our reputation sometimes. It costs us our routines, our comfort zones. All of that can come under the umbrella of humility. For me to begin to experience the life of the gospel means walking in humility. It means grappling with who I'm following. Because most of us, what we want to do is we want to follow ourselves uh, You've heard the, the joke before. Of, how do you tell, especially in the area of social arena of social media, when there's a group photo of, and, and you're in it? How do you determine if the, the group photo that you're in is any good? 
we always have to check out. How am I looking here? Am I looking okay? And if I look okay, it doesn't matter what's going on with everybody else. They can have spinach hanging from their teeth, but I'm good. Why? Because we've got this inherent thing that comes from our fallenness that says, I want to follow me. I want everything to, to revolve around me. Mary was revealing something here in this act of extravagant love that it's not about me, uh, it's about him. Verse, verse 3, then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. Powerful statement right there. Jews, the, 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 the foot was the most vile part of the body. It was dirty. It was in, in ancient, near the ancient Middle East where dust is getting between you. They're sweaty, the caked on mud. In fact, even Jewish slaves... In a Jewish home, they might have Gentile slaves and Jewish slaves, but the Jewish slaves even were exempted uh, from caring for the feet of the guests. Uh, That was reserved for the person who was lowest on the totem pole in the hierarchy of the household. So Mary was humbling herself. And then it says, with her hair. A reputable woman, woman would not take down her hair in public. And what she's saying is, I don't care about my reputation. I care about him. Back in 1543, you're not going to find this on Amazon, I don't think, although I didn't check. Uh, A book by Nicholas Copernicus on the revolutions of the celestial spheres. Um, You say, well, that's an interesting title. It's actually one of the most important books that have ever been written in science. Because what... Nicholas Copernicus, he was from what we now know as Poland. He was a mathematician. He was an astronomer. What he determined was something that turned our understanding of the cosmos on its head. In fact, uh, we can all be very grateful because up for, since the beginning of time, everybody had perceived that what the universe is all about is that the earth is at the center and the sun revolves around the earth. And Copernicus said, no, the sun's at the center and the earth revolves around him. Well, that was within state circles, church circles. Everybody said that's false. In fact, I got pretty angry at him. Nicholas kept at it. This was published right before he died. And he actually never saw his view embraced others like uh, Galileo or the ones that popularized it. But what that did is it caused people to reorient themselves, to realize that the earth is not the center of the universe, but the sun is, and we're revolving around it. What Mary is revealing is something similar to, this is a page from Copernicus's book, his original drawing, Sol, is at the, at the center. S-O-L in Latin means sun. Mary was revealing something that was life-giving for her. And it was life-giving because she was giving something up. She was giving her her self-centric perspective up and saying, I'm not the center of my life. So many of us in our fallen condition, we put ourselves here, group photos and lots of other things that are far more detrimental. We say, I'm at the center. And and then we come to Christ, we say, great, he can be in the inner circle and he can still circle around me and do what I I want him to do for me. When I really begin to grasp the gospel, I realize he's at the center, I'm not. 
And the Copernican revolution, when that happens, it's scary for a human being because we think, I don't want to give up the notions that I have that everything's about me. But when I do that and say it's all about him, it actually doesn't take away my life. It gives me life. Isaiah 64, verse 8, Yet you, Lord, are our father, and we're the clay. You're the potter, and we're the work of your hand. So often we tend to think, okay, we're the potter, we're the potter, and we determine what happens. No. When I have that Copernican revolution, I acknowledge the truth. It's not me creating a new truth. It's acknowledging what's there, just as was the case with, uh, with Copernicus. He wasn't creating something. He was acknowledging what was true. Earlier in Isaiah, chapter 29, verse 16, you turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. This is what we do in our selfish orientation that robs us of the life of the gospel. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, you did not make me? Can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing? No, God, you know, you know me. You got this. And it's so when I'm giving my life up that I actually find my life. Jesus said in this passage, he says, you will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. What was he affirming there? He was affirming that Mary responded. She said, I'm, I'm not going to let... I, I, she probably had a number of other things going on in her life, but she knew time was of the essence. And she said, I'm going to... I'm going to reorient my life according to what I'm called to do as a human being, not according to what's convenient for me. And the cost of living, the cost to live the gospel, means me laying down the the idol of convenience and picking up the cadence of calling and saying, God, I trust you. And I want to live with you at the center of my universe. So that's the first area. Here's uh, how that comes out. He must become greater. I must become less. John 3.30, what John the Baptist said, that's all about me saying, you're enough and I trust you. Secondly, the cost of living involves not just humility, but intimacy. Humility has to do with who I'm following. And I'm switching from uh, following myself to following him. Then once I'm following him, Intimacy becomes part of the cadence, part of the rhythm of my life. Uh, the cost there is I'm trading what a lot of people, especially those of us in churches are doing, are trading our religiosity. You've got a real uh, battle going on between Judas and, and Mary in terms of their orientation. Uh, verse 4, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. By the way, that was a very religious thing to say. And he was contrasting that with, with and, and then he had averted that with his own thievery. But bottom line, he was saying, yeah, I'm hanging around Jesus. It's a religious thing to do. And you know what? This offerings that are taken can really benefit me. Why am I following Jesus? Why are you? It's because of a nostalgia. Tim, whom I mentioned earlier, he says uh, a lot of people follow him because of nostalgia, meaning... Um, you know what, I grew up in church and I just don't feel right when I'm not in church or bargaining with God, making a deal with God or guilt, trying to convince myself that I'm worth something and convince God. None of those motivations are life-giving. The motivation for following Jesus is intimacy and it's what Mary's modeling here. She's saying, I love you. 
That's why she was doing this. Not nostalgia, not bargaining, not guilt, not any other, a bunch of other reasons. And you can see some of their relationship from an instance that happened earlier in Jesus's ministry when Jesus had been at Mary and Martha's house, the same house he's having dinner. As Jesus' disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. We spent an entire series on this a while back called Calibrate. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said But Martha was distracted by the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. And Jesus gently but firmly rebuked Martha. He said, Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you're worried and you're upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. And Mary has chosen what's better. It's not going to be taken away from her. He's saying, Mary has chosen this moment to relate with me to sit at my feet. And there was an intimacy going on. So what's happening on this particular evening that we're talking about when Mary picks up that alabaster vase and and begins to... It's an overflow of her love. Now, she's also onto something. Because she was such a great listener, she noticed stuff like this. In John 7, earlier, we looked at this a while back. I'm with you for only a short time, and then I go to the one who sent me. Jesus, throughout his ministry, was giving these these premonitions, these teachings about, hey, I'm not going to be here. This is what's going to happen from that time on. Matthew 16, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Mary paid attention to that. He was getting that. So she knew he didn't have long, and the reason that he didn't have long was that he was going to die. But she also knew because of their relationship, there was a connection. She didn't know all about justification by faith, and, but she had been listening and she knew there was some connection between Jesus's death and his love for her. She knew the religious, the religious leaders were after him. Jesus had been teaching that he was not going to be there. Bottom line, she knew that he loved her. This is what motivates us to follow. This is what's life-giving. 2 Corinthians 5, 14, for Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. Not nostalgia, not guilt, not religiosity, but intimacy with him. His love for me and my response to love for him. So for every yes I say to Jesus, I've got to say no to something else. Why do we do that? Out of intimacy. That's the life-giving motivation. Now, this is eternal life. How do we know life? What life is? It's not heaven that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ you sent. This is one of the the earliest indicators, uh, expressions, really illustrations of that, where Mary is saying, I know him, and Jesus is affirming that. Let's look at the third cost area. For me to really live the gospel it's to walk in humility. It will cost me my pride. It will cost me my convenience. It'll cost me maybe my, my reputation, my rights, my routine. It'll cost me my religiosity. So there's humility, there's intimacy. But it'll also cost me all my resources. And it'll cost me that gladly. To follow him in a life-giving way involves humility and intimacy, but it also involves generosity. It's not just who I'm following and why I'm following him, but how do I follow him? 
It's not just doling out, Jesus, I'll give you a little bit of my week when it's convenient. I'm giving you my life. I'm giving you everything I am. Everything. It's yours. And instead of that putting me into a, a place of, of, of scarcity and not having enough, it's a place of abundance. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. A pint. It was actually not the normal, smaller version. It's, this is a pint. Judas railed against her because he said, do you realize it's a year's wages? That wasn't figurative. In the Greek, it says 300 denarii. Denarii was the daily wage of a common laborer. We are talking about something astronomical in its expense. Whether Lazarus and Mary and Martha were quite wealthy or whether she, this was just something that she had been saving for a long time and it was probably a combination of the two. This was no small gesture. This was no religious tip of the hat. She poured this on his feet, something that in our current currency would be between twenty dollars and $30,000. She said, Jesus, I love you. She humbled himself. She was intimate with him, loving him. And then she was being generous. And she was saying, this is yours. I give you all I am. And I realize you've not been scarce with me. I'm not going to be scarce with you. You've been abundant with me, so I want to be abundant towards you and towards the people around me. A lot of religious people live according to a theology of scarcity, and he's all about being abundant with us. Not in a health, wealth, everything's going to be fine sense, but in terms of his adequacy, in terms of his enoughness. And it's something that motivates us to live for him. A friend of mine, I was just on a Zoom call with him uh, a couple of weeks ago. We've known each other since our days at Wheaton College. And he did a Facebook post, actually, with this photograph. I'd, I'd forgotten about the photograph. Um, his name's Jimmy. He's a dear friend. And I was speaking down at a pastor's conference in Ecuador and took three other friends of mine. And the week before we were going to speak at this pastor's conference, uh, we headed into the jungle to the, uh, to the east of, of Quito to a, a tribe called the Waldani. Long ago, they were known as the Alcas. They hosted us in their village. The reason we wanted to visit them is there were five missionaries back in January of 1956, guys that had been at Wheaton College and wanted to go down because this tribe had not heard the gospel. They were vicious they were known to be killers, but they wanted to go. And on January the 8th, 1956, Roger Udarian, Ed McCulley, Nate Saint, whose son arranged this visit for us, Pete Fleming, and Jim Elliott paid the ultimate price. Their lives were taken. Minkaihe is the one who insisted on carrying my backpack. He came to Christ because Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth, 
she went back to that tribe and they welcomed her and she explained the gospel and lived the gospel. This man is contagious in his joy. Laughing all the time. He's the guy that gave me the nickname I've mentioned to you guys, Giant Matchstick. Minkai just passed away about three weeks ago. That's why Jimmy did this post. The reason I bring it up to you in the context of Of the Nard, it was from India, by the way. It was very, very rare, very, very expensive. Jim Elliott understood something that Mary understood. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I'm not going to be scarce in what I give to Jesus. He's not scarce in what he gives to me. I want to be abundant in my posture to him, in my generosity to other people to him. I'm someone whom God has created, someone whom God sustains, someone whom God's redeemed, and someone whom God has lavished with his grace. He's lavished me with his grace in his life. This is what God, the, the Lord says. He who created the heaven and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. He's the one that's got me. Not only has he created me a sustain, he's redeemed me in him. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. You guys have heard me talk about this before. The word there, the root is perisuo. It means abundant, which is the same that Jesus is referring to. You can have life to the full. Perisuo is the word there. So out of that lavished grace, we can experience a lavish life. Not a lavish life in terms of materialism or hedonism, but a lavish life in terms of us receiving the abundance of God and giving that abundance away. And John says, and the house was filled. I can just see him as an old man writing this. He says, and the house was filled. Just writing that quill to parchment. Sure, he sat back. And he remembered the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume long after Mary's act was done. They still smelled the ramifications of it. So the fragrance of our generosity with our finances, with our abilities, with our time, with our life, with a little L, heart beating, lung breathing. It's all of these things, but also our life at the gospel. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 2, in the Messiah, in Christ, God leads us from place to place. And one perpetual victory parade Regardless of my circumstances, he's going to triumph. He's going to get us through this. He's going to get us through this pandemic. He's going to get us through this crisis as a culture. And even as a church, he's going to lead us in victory. He says, through us, he brings the knowledge of Christ everywhere we go. People breathe in the exquisite fragrance of our obedience, of our worship. Because of Christ, we give off a sweet scent rising to God, which is recognized by those on the way of salvation, an aroma redolent with life. 
Here's what I pray for us as his people. The fragrance of our engagement with the life of the gospel, having been awakened, and in evangelism, yes, but also in acts of justice and mercy, walking humbly with our God. The fragrance of our lives are smelled in our communities, in our offices, in our neighborhoods. It's the fragrance of the gospel. It's the fragrance of life. So here's what I'm going to... I'm going to pray for you this week. Pray that you smell. Not stink. But smell with the fragrance of the beauty of Jesus. As a result of your humility before Him and your intimacy with Him and your generosity because of Him. May we be a people that walks to a cadence of abundance, not scarcity. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for Mary and for what she modeled for us. And that painting by Yeroshenko in which he says, there is life everywhere. There was life in that place. And may there be life in our families, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, and in our culture. As a result of our humility and our intimacy with you and our generosity with the people around us. As a result, may we smell with the fragrance of you, Jesus, the fragrance of your life. I pray this in the name of the one who has called us out of darkness into light and out of death into life. Amen. Amen. I'm glad you've been here. Let's pray for one another this week. And may we smell like Jesus.